today's space has unexpected news. Um, and I, I don't know, Scott, maybe do a quick market update um, as we wait for more people to join and the panel to join. But but uh, the news with the Agro really caught us by surprise yesterday. So if that's okay with you, Scott, I want to kind of get, I'm curious to get more details on that. Yeah, I would love to. Just a as for the market update, uh, Bitcoin actually up about 25,500 right now. Um, and as a lot of that people are attributing to the BlackRock news that we're going to dig into. Ethereum up 1% at 1660 three uh, i don't even know do we want to do stock market updates here i mean we always do it we can run through it but everything yeah, yeah i think it's, it's useful yeah literally flat you know it, nasdaq 13,000 0.01 very exciting go ahead ran can we just get straight to the fucking point that blackrock is actually gonna get the first crypto edf oh they they talk about can we just talk about the elephant in the room they've only they've applied for 576 etfs They've had 575 of them approved and they've had one disapproved. Yeah, so this is the first one that's going to fail. I mean, my view on this is that the SEC was super clear about this. You, you, if you want to launch a spot-based ETF rather than a futures one, you need it needs to work. These spot-based assets need to operate within a, a regulated spot exchange. And there aren't any of those at the moment for you know, something that's physical. So there is the CME, obviously, for the futures-based ones. But you know, that is the big stumbling block. And I know everyone's getting really excited about BlackRock because they're big and you know, that they've got a lot of clout. But you know, I still think the SEC, we need to come back to the basics here and say, well, the SEC's been super clear on this. It's got to, you've got to have regulated exchanges. And it seems like we're a way off that so far. I was very surprised that BlackRock went in with a partner slash whatever they however they refer to coinbase you've got the sec who's actually responsible for approving and declining this etf but then at the same time you've got the sec telling coinbase that they've been operating an illegal an illegal securities exchange for since they started you got the sec uh telling coinbase that they're looking for disgorgement um for a, re a return of all the revenues made uh in in the uh in the trade of these illegal securities and uh, at the same time um blackrock supplying for an etf to the same sec with coinbase as effectively the execution partner uh look i think that when blackrock when blackrock are in the game like blackrock trumps gary gensler you know what i mean like, like i think like there's hierarchies here and i think that blackrock trump gary gensler so if I were to put money, I'd put money on the fact that BlackRock actually do get the Bitcoin ETF approved. They know what they're doing. They also know that, that the, the the SEC hasn't approved ETFs. They wouldn't have got into the ring if they didn't think that they could get it. Yeah. Because they're not stupid. They don't, the they don't want the reputational. Technically, it is a trust, but it's different to the Grayscale Trust in that it has daily liquidity, which is ultimately, in any other word, it is an ETF in that respect. So it is, you know... If you look at the original gold fund that they created, that is a trust too, and it and it kind of works because you know you something that physical like this you can't technically have it as an ETF, so it has to be a, a form of trust really, and that's what this is. So I mean, they're taking a slightly different angle at this. It'd be very interesting to see how the SEC interpret it, but you know I think in 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 defence of what the SEC have said before. The trust, uh, at least gold, is traded on regulated exchanges. And, and 
physical Bitcoin is not yet. Can I, J James, uh, I want to jump to the other James who we brought on specifically, James, uh, from, from Bloomberg, because I know you and Eric, uh, who were trying to get uh, up on stage as well, have dug in pretty deep. I think we should start at the beginning there with that clarity between what makes this trust or ETF different, how this is different from GBTC, how this is more similar to GLD, I think, as James just pointed out. Yeah, so there's a lot of confusion. I saw it all over Twitter last night. Um, I was like in the middle of doing stuff and my Eric called me. He was like, you see these people are questioning whether it's an ETF. Um, so this is an ETF filing. Um, the most ETFs that you see, are there's they have underlying structures. And most, 95% of the assets, 95% of what you see is open-end funds or something along those lines. Something under the 1940 Act in the U.S., um, open-end investment companies often in Europe, things like that. That's what you're used to seeing. But with commodities, you can't do that. You can't operate and launch a product in under those types of regulatory frameworks. There's a lot of other underlying structures that you use to launch in what we refer to as an ETF wrapper. Um, so an example of that is grantor trusts, which is what this will operate as, uh, and what GBTC is, what GLD is, um, there's a few other options. You can do unit investment trusts, which is what the first ETFs in the US were. That's what SPY is. It's a trust. Um, that's the largest ETF in the world. Uh, there's also commodity pools, limited partnerships. There's some ETFs that are underlying structure is a C corporation, like a traditional company. Um, so, but for all intents and purposes, this is an ETF. And what makes it different from GBTC, as I'm sure everyone on here on this panel knows, is GBTC does not offer operate creations and redemptions at the same time. Um, and that's what GBTC is and Grayscale are suing the SEC to be able to do. They're suing to be able to convert and operate as an exchange-treated fund in the United States. And this BlackRock filing is doing the same thing. They're filing to launch and operate a Bitcoin ETF in the United States. Now, the difference here, the issue, the reason Grayscale is broken, the GBTC trust is broken, is because when you think of a stock, right, for the most part, the share supply doesn't change much. So what dictates the price of the share is the demand from investors. So as demand goes up, if you think about it as like two, two bars on a graph, as demand rises, the pr that's what changes the price. But with an uh, efficiently operating traded fund, you can change the supply to meet demand. So as demand goes up, you create more shares. And as demand goes down, you destroy shares or redeem shares. And what this does is it makes sure that the price of the fund is exactly in line with the underlying value of the assets that it holds. That process, that creation redemption process is what we refer to as like the flux capacitor to go back to uh, back to the future reference. Like that's what makes this whole thing work and why everyone wants an ETF and why it's the crown jewel of launching a product like this. Uh, so, okay, that's perfect clarity. Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's perfect clarity onto what it is. So I think that we're clear that this qualifies as an ETF. Now we get to got to get between Rand and James's debate as to whether BlackRock will be approved and what that would mean. I mean, we've seen 22 ETF applications denied by the SEC, to James's point. This has been a very clear position from the SEC as to their likelihood to approve. But Scott, BlackRock just moved to the front of the line because they're BlackRock. Scott, do you do you ever watch uh, wrestling or, or, or UFC or boxing? And I say in the left corner, we have this fighter. He's got a record of 575 knockouts to one one loss that's a, that's that's basically where you're at blackrock are the experts of of each 
BlackRock know exactly what you've just said, that we've had 25, whatever, ETFs declined. If they have come in and put in an ETF application, they know exactly why they've done it. They wouldn't go in as BlackRock and have the second loss on their name. That's the way I see it. I'm on your side of this. So uh, I, I believe that they will get approved. Uh, I don't think they would have filed if they didn't already know that they will have yet. You know Let's go. So many, guys, 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 made the point. Mark Yusko came onto my show a long time ago. I said to you a long time ago. I think it was like over a year or, or a year and a half ago. And we were then waiting for an ETF uh, result, which obviously came out negative. And I said to him, do you think that, I don't know if it was Grayscale or I don't know who it was. And I said, do you think that this, com- this company is going to get the ETF approved? And we were all quite excited at the time that this is the one that's going to get approved. And you know what he said to me? He said, oh, no, no, they're never going to get approved. The only person, the only company yep. that's ever going to get an ETF approved is, is, um, is uh, 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 BlackRock. So I've, heard him say it, I've heard him say it 50 times. Yeah, I mean, he's been saying it literally for years. You're right. Maybe we should get this. Maybe we should get him. I just invited him. <laughs> I just invited him. Uh, I, I just... Can you take a few steps back? Why does that really matter? What does it mean for crypto? Like if we're seeing, we've always talked about the herd is coming, the herd is coming. Moving ethics or what's fair aside, just thinking of it from from pure business perspective. Well, the herd is here. And now we're complaining that the herd is here? I, I don't think, listen, it's just hard to cheer BlackRock if you like believe in the ethos of Bitcoin. But yes, objectively, if you're viewing it through an investment lens, this is probably a good thing. Uh, come on. What I've said, but I've been saying- No, come on, come on, wait, wait, stop. No, no, come on. You're not, you're not one of these crypto people that think that BlackRock is bad for crypto. BlackRock managed more money than probably any other financial- $8 trillion. Dollars. I'm not, I wasn't making that argument. I'm saying that that's what you're going to hear from the uh, Bitcoin maximalist side and such. But what you will hear from me, and I've been saying it since literally the day that FTX crashed and it was listening, is that- this was going to be the moment when Wall Street was going to swoop in and the SEC probably or regulators, legislators would naturally favor Wall Street incumbents over the crypto companies that actually built the this industry in the first place. And we were going to basically just see them swoop in and Wall Street companies like Fidelity, Charles Schwab, BlackRock were going to be the ones to get approved. I mean, I, I, I don't think you can see an influence. You can see an influence. Sorry. Thank you, everybody. I don't care if it's BlackRock. Or white rock, or pink rock, or yellow rock. Yeah, and, and Scott, Scott, you said, but Scott, the the, the question I have, and, and I see, uh, I see James trying to jump in, but the, the question that I have is, whenever we saw any of these big guys do anything in crypto back in 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 2017, 2018, or even in the recent bull run, everyone would celebrate. Now we look when you look at the narrative, um, it, it's more negative. And Scott, you kind of mentioned that in Yahoo, on Yahoo Finance yesterday. I did actually watch it. And he said that the, what, what uh, the SEC is doing is just unfair. You know, they've killed the people that really innovated, that brought crypto to where it is today. Instead of giving them credit, they're killing them for the sake of Wall Street. And that's what you complained about. Well, I just think, listen, the, if we're being objective here, yes, it would be great if BlackRock gets approved. But are we going to see a materially different? And maybe, James, you have your hands up. Is this materially different than the filings from Van Eck? or Valkyrie, or Grayscale, or any of the others who have been trying to get uh, ETF approved in the past? Jay, go ahead, James. I would love the answer to that. Yeah, so fun. Like from a first principles perspective, no, they're not going to be any different. This is the same type of filing, but I, I want to make a few points. One is that, yes, I agree with what you guys are saying about BlackRock. BlackRock is about as well-connected as you can be with what's going on 
in DC and the SEC and what have you, right? They, they know what's going on. If there's anybody that I trust to read the regulatory tea leaves and know and have a prediction, it's going to be BlackRock over anyone else. So that's why if any other issuer had filed this, I wouldn't have like the same sh- strong words about like the fact that BlackRock is filing this as a positive thing potentially for Bitcoin ETFs. The one thing I want to throw water on on this like the this a little bit is Black even if so I think part of the reason they're doing this is because they think Grayscale is going to win their lawsuit with the SEC, which we can get into in a bit. But it doesn't necessarily mean even if Grayscale wins that they're going to definitively be able to convert to an ETF. So that's the first thing. The second thing is even if the odds of Grayscale converting and them winning or BlackRock are less than 50%, they obviously think the odds have gone high enough and the payout of being in line with the first or the very first or coming out right in line with other issuers is worth the risk of filing this. So one, they don't take massive risk, but obviously the payout for taking this risk of filing is is serious. The other thing I want to say is there is already an active Bitcoin e- spot Bitcoin ETF filing, and it's from 21 shares partnered with ARK Investment. Um, 21 shares is a crypto ETF issuer. They, la- they have a whole bunch in Europe. Um, they have already a filing sitting at the SEC. So technically they're ahead of BlackRock. Um, so the SEC would have to perform some sort of, uh, I'll use the word fuckery to, uh, essentially deny that. And then right uh, like a month later, approve the BlackRock one. So I, I think, think this is, okay, go ahead. James, like fuckery is a good word for it because, you know, um, I fail to see what new angle, um, the BlackRock are going to take to allow the, for the SEC. The new angle is being called BlackRock, James. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is one angle, but. That would be a sad day, right? Just a giant Wall Street firm suddenly gets it and some other firm where have, have some equally good minds tackling this doesn't get it and it just smacks of favoritism. And it's along the kind of seam at the moment of what's going on with the SEC, etc. And I, it would be a very sad day, although I'm keen for actually a lot more investors to get access to this. We have tons of investors saying to us, look, as soon as some big firm gets in, we're getting in. So if someone like BlackRock gets in, I think, this is a really positive thing. If you look at the example of ProShares when it listed a year and a half ago, there's an instant $1 billion worth of all of money flowing into Bitcoin. I mean, if it was something like Black BlackRock, it, it would be easily $10 billion in a week we'd see inflows. So could, that, could, that, could, we, could we link the, the uh, market today with this news? Because the market has recovered a bit. could be just a, a recovery from what we saw over the last few yeah. days. But could it be linked to BlackRock considering market conditions? Well, I think so a little bit, but my interpretation of the market is kind of shrugging us off and saying, I, I don't Agreed. quite believe this just yet. Yeah, not only that, uh, not only that, I think there was a little bounce to Bitcoin because there were the announcements yesterday that Celsius was going to sell all its altcoins into Bitcoin. I think more and more the market's realizing, you know, it's probably safer, I'm not saying better, but safer to get out of altcoins and to Bitcoin. And we're getting that that period of fear if the bitcoin dominance it's up to 49.5 now um when we spoke about uh, 10 days ago 12 days ago it was around 48 or something like that so there is a lot of fear now a lot of people are very scared of altcoins and they're just putting their money into bitcoin and uh, that's what's happening and forget there was also a tether fight yesterday um with when tether depict and then you know that, that also gets people to 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 um what happened with it? What happened? So, Ryan, since you mentioned Tether, what happened with Tether? I saw in the news something about the links Tether has to China. I know that I know there's a lot of concerns around the Chinese economy. Have you, has anyone read this? Uh, I, I didn't see that. I did see something around um, that. I saw a tweet. I don't know if the tweet anything is that there was going to be some new attack on Tether. 
which never materialized. But I, I spoke with Paolo. Yeah, I spoke with Paolo yesterday, actually, um, which will be out on Sunday. I did it on my podcast. I was trying to get him on Spaces, but he prefers the one-on-one conversations. Uh, and he, I mean, quickly dispelled this. We, we do this every single round. That tether fund was nonsense. But I, I don't know if you did see the bigger news, which is that actually they've had requests from Coindesk. I think it's called FOIL, F-O-I-L, uh, Freedom of Information, something or other. Uh, and they actually complied with it. And that news came out yesterday after all these years, which means that uh, Coindesk, other journalists and everyone will have a snapshot, be able to look back into Tether's books and accounting from the past. So we'll be able to see their balance sheet from previous years and now, uh, which should dispel any issues about their their backing. But I, I do want to stick on BlackRock. And John, listen, we have someone from the uh, SEC, not currently, but obviously in the past, John Reed Stark, you probably have more insight into what's happening at the SEC and potentially their thinking than anyone else. Yeah, thanks. I, I'm not sure how to interpret this, but I think I can come up with a few answers. First of all, it's important to get in line for this kind of request because clearly if a Republican administration is elected, then a Bitcoin spot ETF is going to happen. That is what it seems to me, at least when you look at the votes at the commission. Secondly, I listened to the Grayscale hearing and I was really surprised. I mean, I was almost shocked and the, the other lawyers on the call can can disagree or agree. But uh, the, the, the judges seemed very receptive to Grayscale's arguments and seemed very sympathetic to this idea that the SEC's rulemaking was arbitrary and capricious, which just blew me away because I, I, I don't think the SEC has ever even been challenged on the basis of something being arbitrary and capricious. However, having said that, uh, I think the reality is, what are these judges going to do? They even said during the hearing, one of the judges said, look, can I order the SEC to not uh, stop the CF, the, 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 the futures spot ETF? Or, you know, what, what action can the judge take to force the SEC into some kind of rulemaking? They can say this was a problem and the SEC needs to revisit. But there are, there are at least a dozen different pivots the SEC can do, and you can bet they're going to do it. First of all, they can write a much more extensive, even though they wrote a fairly extensive one already, a much more extensive rejection of these spot, uh, Bitcoin spot ETF applications. Second of all, they could withdraw the, the futures ETF. They could reconsider that. There are all kinds of things. And it's, it's not like they've ever backed down from anything. If you look at the Binance case, so, so I don't know that grayscale matter is going to actually result in what, um, what everyone wants on that side, which is to somehow approve a Bitcoin spot ETF. I don't necessarily see a clear pathway for that to happen from a judicial perspective. And I see the SEC pushing back incredibly hard on that because if you read their opinion uh, denying the Bitcoin spot ETF, their, their, reason, their rationale seems to me pretty straightforward and pretty clear that the, the marketplace is just filled with all sorts of manipulation and all kinds of chicanery and all kinds of grift and no transparency. So how can they approve this sort of thing? And the, the, the appellants were saying, well, look, they already did in the context of a futures one. So both, I think the judges were all um, Trump appointees. I can't remember on the circuit panel, but the SEC could appeal it to a panel on Bonk. There, there are many, many different things that the SEC can do. But if you look at the Binance case and what's been going on with it today, uh, it could happen as early as today. The judge reported, the parties reported at least yesterday that they were getting close to a consent decree. But the SEC will have successfully frozen at least $2.2 billion of U.S. assets relating to Binance. 
And they did it really in the context of an emergency asset freeze, which is unprecedented in this kind of scale. To, and, and when you do an asset freeze, I did quite a few of them when I was at the SEC and I was there for you know almost 20 years. You, you go into a judge's chambers and you say, look, Your Honor, the fraud is so bad here that investors' funds are at risk, that clearly uh, if we bring the other side into this hearing, most of these are done ex parte, they could take the money and run. So we need this extraordinary relief of an asset freeze. Now this judge, you know, some people may say, well, look, the judge isn't granting the SEC the relief they want in the form of the TRO and asset freeze. Well, that might be true, but she's ordered them to uh, to essentially agree on an asset freeze. Because on all the asset freezes I did, you, you always come in a week later and say, okay, here are the expenses that we'll allow. We'll allow them to pay electricity. We'll allow them to pay their employees. We'll allow them to pay their lawyers. You don't always have to do that. You know, some judges will say, look, all these proceeds are the proceeds of a fraud, so you can't use them for anything. But typically, judges will allow those kinds of ordinary course expenses after a TRO, and you might bicker and argue about those. So essentially, the SEC John. is getting everything they want here, and how are they going to going to approve a Bitcoin spot ETF in light of what they're alleging at the largest cryptocurrency exchange in the world. Thanks, Mario. So John, John, I have two questions for you. One is you mentioned that that in this case, they are freezing $2.2 billion of Binance assets. How do, how do you get to that $2.2 billion of Binance assets? The last time that I looked, uh, Binance US had less than $200 million in the exchange in total. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a great point. I probably would say that's what the SEC wants frozen. That's what they've mentioned should be frozen. I don't think anybody has a good idea of where those money, where those funds are, and how much they are. Um, but the judge seems to be. I mean, the SEC. Go ahead. The SEC is also asking. The SEC is also. I mean, initially came out asking for them to freeze Binance International assets, which is a real far stretch and probably would, would never have happened. I said it as it happened, but I mean. I think the way that I understood the 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 reaction of the judge, I'm not going to say it's a ruling, but the reaction of the judge is that the judge said, look, I'm not going to freeze the assets. You guys come up with something that is realistic and protects both sides and is acceptable. Now, with the exchange that now probably has less than 100, Binance US, as of this morning, was 1% of, of, uh, of the assets of US exchanges because that, a lot of people have already, have already um, withdrawn their assets from Binance. I think the numbers are, if anything, they'll freeze a hundred million dollars. Like well, we'll see. You know, I, I think you, I, I really don't know. You make a really excellent point that it's tough to say from the pleadings. And I've read all of them and all the exhibits. There are just dozens of accounts in question here that the SEC has looked at because they've had the benefit of discovery during their investigation of documents from from Signature Bank um, and from Silicon Valley Bank and uh, all sorts of other sources. I mean, who knows? You know, I, I feel like that this is extraordinary relief. The SEC has never sought it before, this kind of relief in history, in this kind of context. You know, this is a, a multi-billion dollar international corporation. Just about all the TROs and asset freezes I did were, you know, small companies, small groups of people ripping people off. Now, there was the Telegram TRO, but you remember that TRO did not seek an asset freeze. It just sought an injunction. So that was, the, even then, the SEC didn't seek to freeze the the, the two billion or so assets that Telegram had raised, but they eventually got whatever assets remained paid back to those investors. So I think any day things can change. You know, I, I wrote a long Twitter post about why I think a criminal indictment is either going to be unsealed or either going to be brought forward. 
given that all, everything that that's said in the CFTC complaint, everything that's said in the SEC complaint, given even the SEC complaint, oddly, and I never did this in any complaint that I ever wrote, and certainly I never wrote complaints that long, but uh, literally mentioned the criminal investigation in their complaint. They said it had been reported and they cited like maybe a Reuters report or something along those lines. That's very unusual. I never would say anything about joint criminal investigations, but typically when I was chief of the Office of Internet Enforcement and I was that for 11 years, we had FBI agents embedded with us uh, every Every week or two, we would get together in a meeting with criminal prosecutors, discuss all of our inventory with them and say, hey, these are the cases we believe should get criminal attention because these companies are treating us like like uh, like meter meter maids giving out parking tickets. And so we we want we think these these actions warrant criminal attention and criminal investigation and criminal prosecution. And typically the FBI agents and U.S. assistant U.S. attorneys attending would ask lots of questions and we would go over, you know, share every single piece of evidence we had with them. And if I were sharing evidence that has been revealed in the CFTC complaint and certainly the extraordinary, the, just the, the thousands of pages in the SEC TRO motion, and we haven't even seen the declaration of the staff attorney in that matter. And remember, there are two declarations, one from the SEC accountants and one from the SEC uh, staff attorney and the staff attorney's uh, declaration for whatever reason has not been made public. Maybe there's just too much private information on there. Maybe there's there's delicate. Maybe the criminal prosecutors have said, we don't want you to share that. But for whatever reason, it's been referenced, but not shared. And if you look at the, the kind of evidence that was presented, it would take me about less than a split second to convince the criminal prosecutors in a room in those meetings, those biweekly and weekly meetings we had to take on this case. So if the judge needs a little pushing and and the remedies that they come up with in this consent degree aren't powerful enough the criminal prosecutors may be they may be triggered to act so that that's just my opinion you know based on my experience yeah. i could be wrong but that's what i think yeah i mean i, I did see today i don't know if, uh, if 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 anybody else saw but i saw that binance um is under investigation for money laundering in france and that binance seized their operations in the netherlands so it does feel like the regulatory net is, is catching well, look up. At, look at the hearing, Ron. Look at the hearing when the, the SEC lawyer said in the hearing that, look, with this wash trading, he talked about how when customers of Binance sign up, they sign up believing that there are compliance mechanisms and all sorts of infrastructure to curtail wash trading and other forms of market manipulation. Yet that is precisely what the SEC alleges CC was doing. CZ was doing. That he said in the hearing. Now, that's criminal conduct. I, you don't need a law degree to judge that as criminal conduct. And it's on record. And an, an SEC lawyer has said it in court. And you don't say anything in court that isn't true. SEC lawyer, don't John, do it. John, uh, John, I want to understand something. Um, are all criminal conducts um, uh, pursued by the DOJ? And if not... How do they make a decision whether they're going to pursue someone for criminal conduct and not pursue someone for criminal conduct? That's, that's a great question. No, you know, the answer is, if you look at all the cases our office brought, a lot of the fraud cases we brought didn't necessarily have a joint criminal interest for whatever reason. Maybe the amount of money was too small. Maybe the, 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 they didn't have the resources for it or we couldn't sell it hard enough. But typically, 
their determinations. They need a lot of money involved. They need it to be something that's going to grab headlines. It's going to be important because that's how they send messages by grabbing headlines. And it has to do with the egregious level of the conduct. And again, there could be on the SEC side, there can be grand jury investigations on the criminal side. And because those are secret, the SEC staff can't even know about. But what often happens is the criminal prosecutors deputized an AUS, uh, deputized an SEC a lawyer, and that SEC lawyer becomes what's called a special assistant U.S. attorney. I did that in D.C. court and prosecuted gun, drugs, and domestic violence cases when I was younger. But you can also do that to join a U.S. attorney's office and help them in the prosecution. And that's probably what will happen in the Binance case. The DOJ will say, look, we need someone from the SEC to come over here so that we can share with them all of these secret things. And again, you can have typically in these situations when you bring cases like this, there are all sorts of informants, uh, all sorts of whistleblowers, all kinds of turncoats that are begging for attention. Remember, a whistleblower in this case can get up to 20% of any fine that the SEC collects. And that's big money. And there are a whole slew of former SEC attorneys who run whistleblower uh, whistleblower firms. And you can bet that they're being very active along the lines as well. So there's lots of, of really, this is a very uh, complexities and this is a very dynamic situation. But what what will tempt, to get to your question, what will tempt a criminal prosecutor to bring a case or not bring a case? You know, again, it's usually the dollars involved, the parties involved, the level of importance, the programmatic importance of bringing that kind of case. All of those things will be important to an AUSA. And in this case, clearly there is a criminal investigation. Clearly, it seems to me at least, if I had brought the Binance case, I would have alleged uh, internal control violations relating to AML especially given the AML, the anti-money laundering, the AML allegations contained yeah. in the CFTC complaint. So that makes me think that the SEC carved out that space. They left that that territory for DOJ when DOJ brings their case. Yeah. So that, those are my guesses. Um, I'm, I hear you. I hear you. I want to get back to the BlackRock discussion. Sorry, John. I, I just a lot of people asking about the BlackRock discussion. But James, I want to let you go first. James, stay uh, fine. Yeah. Um, all right. Real quick. The one thing I do want to say, you were talking about like, why did BlackRock choose Coinbase while they're being sued? I want to point out that BlackRock already had a partnership with Coinbase for their institutional clients. So like institutional clients, high net worth individuals, they were using Coinbase to give those clients. Likely what had happened was institutional clients, high net worth individuals were coming to BlackRock who use them for whatever they use them for on their portfolio management side of things. And we're like, I want crypto. And BlackRock had this partnership with Coinbase. So there's already been a partnership in place. So it's a logical next step to use Coinbase as their custodian because Coinbase is one of the main custodians being used for any sort of uh, regulated uh, crypto fund, specifically Bitcoin. The other side, which John was just kind of talking about um, the lawsuit between Binance and Coinbase, I'm wondering if specifically because this is a Bitcoin trust, whether there might not be some like changing of the arguments at the SEC. Uh, James before was talking about how the fact that everything the SEC has said was they want surveillance sharing agreements, they want regulated exchanges for Bitcoin before they approve it. Um, but what they're going after Coinbase for is all the altcoins. Um, even they're not saying it, but Gensler is trying to argue that Ethereum is also a security and not decentralized. And after seeing the Hinman emails, I don't know if everyone here has seen them, but it's pretty obvious that the SEC doesn't really believe or didn't believe that Ethereum was a security. So that means that Bitcoin is the one area where the SEC is basically like, yeah, this isn't a security. So I'm wondering if maybe Gary is kind of like giving up the fight on the Bitcoin front of things, uh, or there's rumblings internally at the SEC, and that's what BlackRock is hearing and why they're doing it. 
Um, so like, I think that's part of it, but really what Gary's trying to do is circumvent Congress here via like enforcement, um, to Binance and Coinbase. And, and as John was talking about, the, the Binance allegations are very, very different from what they're suit, what they're going after Coinbase for. Um, and the other thing I do want to say is like, we talked about being first, um, being in line with the people to launch, um, uh, we we expect a ton of issuers to file for spot Bitcoin ETFs. The BlackRock is the twenty that was the twenty eighth at least filing for spot Bitcoin ETF. Over 20, 20 issuers have applied for these things. We think we're going to see a slew of them file today and maybe on Monday. Um, for example, Grayscale filed for a few ETFs a couple weeks ago. This is just a backstory. And one of the things they filed for was an Ethereum futures ETF. And what you saw the next day was when. Um, within a 13-minute time period, three different issuers submitted their their prospectuses to launch a Ethereum futures ETF. 13 minutes from like 5:14 to 5:27 the following day after after Grayscale applied for an Ethereum futures ETFs, all these issuers were like, "We need to be in line as quickly as possible when these things launch because we want to make sure we can get something out." Uh, ultimately, the SEC made them withdraw those applications, but that just gives you an idea of what's potentially going to happen because. A spot Bitcoin ETF, there's a lot more issuers interested in that than an Ethereum futures ETF. And there's a lot big, lot more money at stake here. So look for a lot of issuers to just file in the off chance that they think this thing is going to get through. Um, let me ask this question. If this happens, what do you think happens to the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust? Do you think the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust is then um, automatically somehow approved? Do you think that the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust then applies to the SEC to say, look, even though we're not an ETF, in order to remain competitive, we we want to apply for it. I don't remember what the section is, but there's some section that they can invoke where they can actually do daily withdrawals. Um, or do you think that Grayscale just played the long game and say, well, tough luck, you signed up for the 2% uh, annual management fees, and now you're actually going to pay them? I don't think, uh, it's changed. I don't think it's as clear cut as that for Grayscale, because let's say they did switch to being an ETF. I think it would be a change in legal entity and therefore anyone who's been in grayscale for many years that sitting on significant capital gains it would be a capital gains event for them to switch from one entity to another uh, and then that would open up the doors for them to say okay well is grayscale at two percent fees is that my best option right now no it probably isn't with black rocks launching one so you might see a big shift out there and also there are many people that be sitting on grayscale that are fed up you know sitting on a i don't know what the discount to nav is at the moment maybe four minus 40 percent at the moment um and fed up and want to move uh, and so we'll probably move quite quickly if they have this option to increase liquidity but if i'm sitting in great if i'm sitting in grayscale shoes or in dc shoes and i'm saying to myself hold on a second i've got a contract with these people that i can indefinitely continue to charge them two percent if i get, if i become an etf I immediately lose those fees. Yeah. There's very little incentive for them to be... Very little incentive incentive for DCG to change the model here. Um, And uh, I mean, I I also keep wondering why they are fighting so hard to become an ETF. I'm kind of putting myself in their shoes and saying, you know, if the minute that an ETF is approved, you're getting no additional inc- uh, inflows into your, your thing. You're going to lose your fees. I think it's their fiduciary duty to do so. To yeah, and, and to GBTC agree. would be if somebody else gets approved for the ETF, GBTC, the actual trust becomes irrelevant. So it's they have to either well, be, be the disruptor or be disrupted. They don't really have a choice. 
hold on. They haven't taken in one additional cent into that trust for months, right? And maybe even a year already. There hasn't been any inflows into the GBT trust. There aren't any outflows. They're earning 2% a year. I think it's 2% even after expenses, which is a little bit more than 2% a year in, in fees. Um, and continue to do this indefinitely for the next 100 years. And they have yeah. no, just by the way, they have no fiduciary duty to do anything because you signed up for that contract. And when you invested, that was the contract that you invested in. And that is just the way that it is. Yeah. So that is definitely a possibility. Like that's what Rand is saying is definitely possible, but I would say it's extremely unlikely. You're basically Grayscale's giving up everything by doing that. Like they're going to lose all reputation. Their reputation is already pretty sullied with how the discount has gone. They've been saying they're going to convert to an ETF. For them not to do it would basically be them taking, uh, just walking out and taking the loss, which I don't see happening. Um, what what James was saying before, th- th- if one approves, what what really is happening is the the process to launch this is going through what's called a 19B4 proposal, or it's a rule change proposal. So if one of these get approved, then the rule change is allowed, and a spot Bitcoin ETF can launch. So basically, what that means is then all the other spot Bitcoin ETFs will have to follow the same rule rule change decision making process of the SEC. So if BlackRock is first or Grayscale wins their lawsuit and they're first, all these other filings that are coming due after they go through the regulatory process of getting approval from the SEC, it's just basically a matter of timing um, when the approval would happen. So it, it like once one is approved, you can you can then launch a spot Bitcoin ETF. Pretty much any issuer can do it. Obviously there's costs and legal and all these different things that have to go into doing it, but it's not—it's not like one gets approved and the other people can't do it. Anyone can do it after that point once it's happened. So whether it's Grayscale winning their lawsuit and the SEC deciding to allow them to launch, then all these other applications can can, can launch. The timeline between when Grayscale, if they get approved, when they can actually convert it to an ETF is a, also up for question, up for debate. But essentially, once one is allowed, the rest can also launch a spot Bitcoin ETF. And what is the benefit of having so many Bitcoin ETFs? And like, I mean, what's, I mean, that's like, it's not like there's any difference in terms of the stock selection. So what is the difference in terms of, why, why would anybody put money into the scale Bitcoin ETF when I can just put money into the BlackRock Bitcoin ETF, which is a, for me, a much more reputable company? Well, yeah. So theoretically, that could be the argument, but also Grace, then I would like, I'm just going to play devil's advocate. Grayscale is the one that's the first one to get one of these products in the traditional finance world. Um, they know digital assets better than pretty much any other fund company out there. There's a handful of others that I would throw in that camp as well. So like, there's reasons why you do it. And also, we don't know what the fees are going to be. Grayscale could drop their fees, right? So Grayscale could all of a sudden get cheap to compete. What's going to happen is undoubtedly when these ETFs launch, Look for it to be a competitive landscape where fees come down across the board for all funds. It's even going to be a detriment to like probably crypto exchanges because these things are going to trade. The cost to trade them is going to be the bid ask spread is going to be like less than a penny wide. Um, it's going to be super efficient, and the all in annual fee likely from the get go is going to be somewhere around 0.5 percent or 50 bips, and pos- and probably go lower rather quickly as people try to get a foothold in the space. Um, so. For all those reasons, like it, it's going to be pretty pretty critical, and it's not just on the fun side of things. Like I said, if you want to trade Bitcoin, um, it's going to be really cheap to trade it on trade the ETF. And these ETFs will allow for redemptions. If you own a certain number of the shares, you theoretically should be able to hand in those shares and take Bitcoin directly. So it's not like you also will be yeah. locked up the way your your Bitcoin is locked up in um, in GBC. I have a question. I have a question for you. Um, 
if we if Grayscale is created or allowed to convert into an ETF, and uh, I don't have the, the exact holdings of Grayscale, but what we do know is that Grayscale GBTT shares are trading at a huge discount. Do you believe that on that day we'll start getting a huge dump of Bitcoin into the market? Um, ironically, it might be the the opposite. That there's no way to actually know because, like, essentially, what a lot of people have right now is just like when it was trading at a massive premium, they were long GBTC and then short Bitcoin. So they would be they would be the, doing the same thing here. So unwinding that trade would mean buying a lot of Bitcoin. Then again, also once it becomes an ETF. You can um, all that Bitcoin can leave. So I think there's 330,000 Bitcoin in there. So like a lot of a lot of money can be ended up dumping in this form of outflows from from GBTC. Dave, why don't you jump in? I know you've had your hand up for a while. Yeah, I wanted to go back to uh, the the why BlackRock point a bit, and I also want to take issue with uh, the arm waving part of John Drew Stark's monologue uh actually on the binance side i thought what he said was incredibly insightful and very helpful but he arm waved around the sec having all this great information in their dials of bitcoin etf uh, Dave, by the way can you david is it possible to get your mic a bit closer i'm struggling to hear you okay i'm trying i'm on i'm on, on airpod oh okay is this better uh it's the same but all good we can still understand what you're saying go ahead so basically the fact of the matter is the, the manipulation and what's really fascinating about BlackRock is they have placed this trust. The filing is a direct comparison to GLD, the Gold Trust, which is one of the world's largest ETFs. And there is no question. You would not be able to find a person who has any quantitative chops whatsoever to make the argument that Bitcoin isn't dramatically more transparent on the way spot trades dramatically less likely to be manipulated. I mean, there have been billions of dollars of fines and gold manipulation out there and dramatically more transparent, particularly considering that the the filing uh, allows for information sharing with the exchanges, Coinbase, that they're trading on. It is a very clear comparison. And so by doing that, the BlackRock ETF application is much, much harder for the SEC to wave their arms around when they make the denial. Now, they probably will deny it, or maybe they won't, I don't know. Obviously, John may know that better than me. But what I do know is that the basis for the denial is going to be much, much, much harder because there is information sharing implicit in the filing. There is incredibly clear evidence. And coin routes, we have a lot of this in terms of how transparent the trading of Bitcoin spot is. And of course, the real hole that Grayscale pointed out in their fire in their their court case is that the notion that futures somehow are less subject to manipulation is complete balderdash i mean literally one of the dumbest things i have ever seen put in print when we all know that the bitcoin spot market moves the cme futures are going to move too so it's completely ridiculous so it's really interesting the way they've set up the trust and i think that is a much better answer to the why blackrock than the conspiracy theory that well they know people um, the fact of the matter is, I don't think this particular SEC cares, you know, who they know, but I do think they care a lot about structure and they've cleverly structured this filing to get around the main non-stupid objections, you know, in terms of the arm waving on manipulation. John, what do you think? Uh, obviously, uh, you have a chance to respond there. Uh, I don't, I don't disagree with, uh, most of, of what he just said. 
uh, except for the part about transparency. Um, I think the SEC sets forth a very extensive list. And again, you can read, you know, any of the 150 or so crypto related cases the SEC has brought that there is obviously a feeling at the SEC that these markets are not transparent, that they are rampant with market manipulation, that the data relating to the markets is sketchy at best. And I don't think that has changed in the slightest. Um, but John, I think we, points about I, I, uh, conspiracy I, I, theories. Sure. Can I make an invitation to you? Let's do a one-on-one -on -one Zoom, and I will show you all the data that we collect in real time from all the markets. And, I'm, and I think that that would change some of your opinion. I am not arguing, by the way, that there isn't sculptiness in the crypto markets. Not saying that at all. What I am saying is that Coinbase, Kraken, Bitstamp, those markets, the data is very transparent on trade. Well, let me, very, very clear. Until your entities are registered as broker dealers or exchanges or clearing firms, whatever registration, whatever you fall into, and subject to the oversight of the SEC and FINRA's uh, auditing, examination, and inspections, I think your data will always be called into question. I, I, th that's just my opinion. You can disagree with that, but well, no, it's not about oversight is important and that's very important to the SEC. So if you're not regulated, you can, you can talk about all your data all you want, but unless that data is confirmed independently by the SEC as being verified and credible may very well be, but as being verified and credible, well, you know, I, I just think it's falling on deaf ears. There's two points there. Point one is the SEC has no jurisdiction over Bitcoin right now. It would be the CFTC. But, and, and point two. But what's the difference? Is, that's, that's ridiculous. Uh, 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 what's the difference? Point the point is, is infectious audits and examinations. Wait, John, 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 the difference is that you just said that FINRA and the SEC should investigate firms. And the point is FINRA has zero jurisdiction over Bitcoin. So you're saying something that's just not even right. possible. But here's the point. No, it's not. But that's not what I'm saying at all. You're twisting my words. John, you can I'm go back and play the tape back. You said that FINRA should be registered with as okay. with FINRA okay. as a John, okay, John, you can tell John, said they now. should be registered. John, okay, John, okay, okay. Would you please stop okay. for a second? I'll go back and listen to the tape as soon as you this said is they should okay? be registered as FINRA broker dealers. My point is John, that they're not John, registered, please. and the data is not something that the SEC can look at. That's all. And whether if you can argue that the date that the SEC shouldn't be allowed to look at that data, if you want, you can certainly argue that. But the point is, the SEC doesn't have access to that data in the in the way that they traditionally would, which is in the form of an inspection, an examination, and an audit. That's all I'm like saying. Like they did with FTX? They didn't have access to it with FTX either. FTX, FTX, FTX was a registered broker-dealer, John. Oh, please. There were no examinations. There were no audits. John, you said they, they were a registered broker-dealer. You just said Coinbase was a broker-dealer. You said John. Coinbase was a registered broker-dealer also. It's a dormant broker-dealer that they bought that they've never used for anything, and you act like they're a registered broker-dealer. There's no. You didn't even know they were a broker-dealer until I told you they were, Okay. <laughs> you didn't even know how to look it up when they, oh, using please. the SEC's oh, website. Oh, right. I don't know anything. You're right. John, go back and play the tape. You didn't, you oh, didn't know. Tape we argued about it. John, we argued about it again and again. Look, you just here's what I'm saying. These are facts. Yeah. Here's what I'm saying. These okay, so this is the John the show SEC now? Audit, the SEC doesn't audit, examine, or inspect those companies that provide this sort of data. 
the, John, the listeners should know that you're not credible, John. Finance, it's not credible. Coinbase and BC, uh, BC and Bittrex have all been charged with being unregistered broker-dealers, unregistered clearing firms, and unregistered exchanges. Literally. See? Okay. FTX was registered. John, <laughs> FTX was all. registered. Good luck to you all, okay? Bruce, no, no, Bruce, no. John, one second. I, I saw that James was going to jump in, and I think I'm going to take a quick breath. So I'll, I'll, I'll talk to you. So, so uh, this is Meta Lawman. We've got too many Jameses. Uh, I am also James. So many Jameses. Yeah, we're piling in here. Just, just a couple, couple thoughts on this for all of, all of your listeners. Um, why is it? Why does it matter that this is an ETF and a different structure from the GPTC? I think that the two Jameses uh, explained it really well. And the point is that there's this arbitrage mechanism embedded in ETFs, which cause them to trade at NAV day in and day out. And that's a really big difference. And it's what people hate about GPTC in addition to the fees. And so that's what, you know, you got a lot of people listening. Why does it matter? Why do we care about the SEC approving an ETF? It's because it trades at NAV. And the, the point was made by somebody. It was a really good point that you'd almost use it as an alternative to buying uh, Bitcoin because uh, the, the price, uh, the fees for these ETFs, if many are approved, it's going to be a competitive landscape. You'll get the equivalent of a Vanguard in there under pricing everybody on fees and forcing it down and down. And that's what's great about a market is that competition uh, works in the favor of investors. Second thing, I read all of the risk disclosures in the uh, filing, in the uh, S1. Um, and it's fascinating reading. Uh, so BlackRock says one of the key risks uh, to the price of Bitcoin and hence the value of shares uh, in the ETF is CBDCs, the introduction of CBDCs, uh, which was was interesting uh, as they viewed it as a threat um, to, uh, you know, the price and adoption of Bitcoin. Second thing was fascinating is this question of the environmental impact of Bitcoin mining. For those people who are Bitcoin maxis or own Bitcoin, care about Bitcoin, you cannot miss the fact that it's a political football and the attack vector against Bitcoin is not, hey, this is an unregistered security. The attack is you're killing the planet. You're causing global warming you're using all of this electricity for some frivolous purpose, and that's really bad. Now, you've got BlackRock, who is the godfather of ESG. BlackRock is the world's foremost proponent of ESG, and it is coming in publicly and saying, you know what? We're good with Bitcoin on this environmental dimension, and we're getting involved in it. So inherent in that decision is an endorsement of mining and trading the the electricity that goes into validating trading mining uh has the endorsement of a very well connected enormous uh organization that is very well politically connected um 
particularly on on the democratic side within the United States, but they're politically connected all around the world. And so therefore, this political uh, you know cudgel that people have been using against Bitcoin mining now has uh, you know a pretty big uh, proponent coming on to the other side and supporting Bitcoin. And, and that's that's all I wanted to say about about uh, the ETF that people should favor, an ETF. I understand John Reed Stark's point about the underlying spot markets. There is manipulation, but you know you're trying. You, you you establish an index. The net asset value will be benchmarked against the index. Not hey, what is it trading at in Zimbabwe? You know, it's going to be an index of multiple exchanges. And so while there may be some manipulation and some of them, uh, hopefully. You get a fair price or close to a fair price. It's not a perfect system, but I think it would be good good for investors to be able to get exposure to Bitcoin through that kind of mechanism. Yeah, I think that's. A, I think that's. A, I think that that is a, a fair point. Sorry, I just. Um, I'm, not, I'm not hearing. It. Can you guys hear me? Yeah, we can hear man. Uh, ah, fantastic. Uh, I, I think that's a great point, guys. I don't know if I want to maybe pivot into the the, the story. And usually we actually have Bill Baha who is actually a speaker. I wonder if he's actually going to join us today uh, around this uh, potential ABRA insolvency or, or alleged ABRA insolvency. I wonder if anybody's got any insight on the alleged ABRA insolvency. I don't have any insight. I, I reached out to Bill. Interestingly, you guys probably noticed the news we were talking about with ABRA on the spaces yesterday which was big, was that Abra was basically cutting off U.S. customers because of regulatory complications and fear. They were announcing basically that U.S. customers and companies would no longer have access to any of their products, uh, including yield, earn, trade, everything, right? And so I reached out to Bill yesterday when I saw that news break, and his response was, I don't even want to quote it incorrectly. I can literally just uh, read it here one second. He said, Abra will be fine. Just another bullet to the head of U.S. investors who get screwed by regulators, right? So he's been on the show, obviously, a million times. But then the news broke in the afternoon, effectively, that I believe it was the state of Texas uh, claiming that they've been insolvent since March of 2023. And we had talked about the idea that Abra had sort of been the last man standing in this uh, industry in the United States. Um and then a whole list of claims. Now, for now, we can't see it substantiated be beyond this case. I'm trying to get Bill to come on. I have a feeling that uh, you know can't do that in this exact moment. But this is pretty big news on the tail of, obviously, Voyager, Celsius, BlockFi. And as I said, they were the ones who had survived it. So I would love anyone uh, in the audience, uh, anyone on the panel's takes on, on what's happening here. I know we all know Bill, or quite a few of us do. I really hope we can get because he has been on the spaces almost every day. Um, last week, the week before, would be you know I think it would be great if we could get him on. Yeah, so we, we've uh, Scott. I know you've sent him an invite, but just uh, I've got a question for you, Scott. How? how um, I know we know, uh, and, and you know more than us, uh, Bill, on a personal level. He's been on stage a few times, but how? What does that mean for crypto? Because Abra is big, but not big enough to impact the market. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I, I don't think this would have a, a market impact. I think uh, this would be more impacted on whatever customers they still have or potentially have. I don't know, in the United States and abroad could could end up in another similar 
situations we that we've seen with similar platforms that blew up last year. So I think uh, you know we're it just gives just gives more more reasons for regulators to keep the crackdown ongoing. Yeah, we're just giving I mean, them more ambition. I don't think the regulators need any more reason. I do think it's maybe another very tiny stick on the fire, but I think uh, the regulatory environment is clear as to what's happening. So, yeah, they would probably use it as a talking point for five minutes, but I would say personally our concern here would be for uh, the customers and and if we end up in another one of these absurd Chapter 11 bankruptcies or, or insolvencies. Bruce, I saw you looking at right. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, Bruce, before you jump into Scott and and uh, apologize, I just was in and out. So, just exactly what happened? Like, if you want to summarize it in two sentences, what what are the allegations at the moment? What do we know? Because I've seen what I know is that there's been money moved, uh, funds secretly moved to a Binance account over the last few months. Um, is that true, or is that is that what the allegations are? That is an allegation, but the the greater allegations, or at least from what I've read, it going through it, is that they were exposed to a, literally like a litany of these. I saw that three arrows capital, so, so Apple, three arrows capital, uh, DCG in some way. I think it was with Genesis. Basically, we all know that there was this uh, somewhat incestuous relationship between all of these platforms and companies. You would take a loan from one, lend it to another one who was taking a loan from the other one. I don't think we need to relitigate the entirety of 2022 uh, crypto blowups. But it seemed that they had been clear of all of this. And now when people are digging in that potentially they had exposure to quite a few of them, literally almost every single one of them to some degree. And that at this point, probably, you know, they were able to hold on long enough and now have it. Now, whether that was being hidden from people, whether there's transparency, violation, I can't speak to that. But uh, seemingly a very similar situation to ones we've seen here. So so the, so the there's two stories to this, uh, Scott, and, and I want you to correct me if I get it wrong. But the first story is that we're seeing dominoes continue to fall, okay, and from, from, from what's happened, from the implosions that we saw um, last year, whenever that was. The other thing is that money moved to a Binance account. That's customer funds, isn't it? I I actually I would love to give you more clarity on that, but uh, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe somebody else has more information on that. But what do what do the does anyone know what these what the allegations say? And obviously, yeah. So I remember innocent until proven guilty, and and um, you know I I want to be objective. Um, and uh, you know we we a lot of people crucified uh, Sam Bankman Fried for what he's done. Um, so I want to be as objective as I can. From what we know, from the allegations, Rand, Bruce, has anyone read them? And uh, I just, I'm just curious on those monies moved to, to Binance, those funds moved to Binance. I read them. I, you know, like, well, what is it, Bruce? Tell us. Uh, well, a lot of these things, you know, and this has been going on since the days of Charlie Shrem. Many of us remember Charlie Shrem back in whatever, 2013. Uh you know, he had gone in, he was a young entrepreneur, one of the early entrepreneurs in this space. He set up a, a popular Bitcoin company where you could buy and sell Bitcoin really, really, really early, like 2011. Uh, he went into the regulators who had never heard of this thing called Bitcoin. And he said, here's this thing. I'm doing it. Is this OK? He went in. He, I think he had something like 26 meetings with the uh, Department of New York Financial Services, Ben Lasky's office. They never indicated there was a problem. Then all of a sudden they arrested him at the airport like it was uh you know some some heist movie or something with a big SWAT team and he ended up doing jail time for how many years did he do Bruce I think he did a couple of years and the ultimate thing was failure to uh report suspicious activity and what really got him was uh helping somebody avoid the uh AML KYC procedures where if you have if you if you do a transaction over ten thousand dollars you report it apparently there was an email that 
uh, Charlie sent that said, hey, if you if you split it into a couple small things, you know, split it into three three thousand dollar things, and then we don't have to report it. So so it was, it was something like three thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars. He was jailed. He was he was he was jailed for that for two years. Yeah. Yeah, it was. The, yeah, and this was the, in the very early days. You have to remember. Yeah, and I, I know, I know Charlie's story. Yeah, yeah, he's a good, so the, good, good friend of all of ours. Yeah. The common theme that you see with this and some of these other allegations is, you know, the the, the prosecutors have an incentive to make it, uh, you know, seem like it's the greatest crime in the world. And in some cases, I mean, in Sam's case, I think it's extremely valid to, uh, you know, call him out as, as a fraudster and a scammer and everything else. Uh, but it should be that, the, but there's a big difference between stealing customer funds and, you know, failing to file some paperwork or, you know, something like what Charlie did, what Charlie did is a crime. I mean, everybody in financial services knows that, you know, my employees should know that I would certainly immediately terminate somebody if they ever did that, of, of course, and hopefully they would never do it in the first place. But there, there is degrees and differences, and we need nuance. I mean, Sam, Sam stole $4 billion. He reached right into it, took client money, put it in his own account, and stole it. And he bought his parents uh, something like $50, $60 million worth of real estate, uh, you know, all these decamillion-dollar mansions and planes and things like that, completely stolen from customer funds. With a lot of these other allegations that you see, uh, you know, that's not the allegation. You know, the, it, it reminds me of the, there was a tether case where there was a big, uh, big press release by the by the New York AG. Oh, tether doesn't have sufficient reserves. They don't have the money they said they have. And then, you know, a couple of days after the press release, when the when the actual complaint comes out, it was over like one hundred eighty dollars. It's like they were they were one hundred eighty bucks off out of twelve billion. You know, so it's so it's sometimes. You know, they, there's an incentive to to buy the press, uh, and sometimes the people. Sorry, write Bruce, this, it, so, sorry, sorry. Uh, I've got a selfish question. What's that tether story? What did you say? What did they say? And it was 180, 183 dollars? No, I, I don't. I don't have the exact details in front of me. But there was. Remember, there was a there was a thing a couple of years ago where the uh, New York AG had put out a release saying that tether didn't have. Yes. Yes. Funds, and and so so when you say you know they claim they have twelve billion and they do not have twelve billion. Everybody's like, oh, my gosh, you know, and I mean, even with the even with the Binance accusations, there's there's no allegation that I've seen, at least that where they're stealing customer funds. You know what? That, that's what the, 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 the SEC's poster child. And, and John hates this, but but it, it's true. SEC, the SEC gave Sam a broker dealer license. They gave Sam a broker dealer license. They gave Sam unprecedented access that absolutely no one in the industry has not even wrong. close wrong. Who said wrong? How is he wrong, John? He had John, two don't... meetings with the chair. Uh, he had know, two meetings with the chair. Okay, no I'm, one else. Sorry, 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 go ahead. Yeah, John, John, yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. Of course, wait, wait, yeah. Let me just finish the, uh, let me just finish the statement. They, yeah, finish. Uh, yeah, so John, I'll give you the mic right after Bruce. Go no ahead, problem. Bruce. No problem. Sam Bankman-Fried had two meetings. Uh, it was, Gensler said that uh, when they asked him, how many times did you meet Sam? He had a very clever answer. He said, my public schedule says two. Now, to me, that tells me that he met more than times, but he's trying to give a clever, sneaky little answer. But we know it's at least two. And we know that at least one of those meetings was discussing no action relief. So Sam, who went to MIT where Gensler taught, and Sam's girlfriend, who was president of FTX, is, a, is, is the daughter of the, the guy who supervised Gensler at MIT. So a friend of his, a family friend of his. And the general counsel for FTX used to be Gensler's personal general counsel when he was with CFTC. So he's got all his old pals, his old crew, his old cronies, all his friends in there. And 
And FTX did have have a broker deal. John will probably say no because he doesn't apparently know how to look these up, or he did later or whatever. But you can okay. look it up. Now. Yeah, well, let's let's get some Bruce. John, you didn't. Yeah, let's get this here. No, no, let me. Yeah, no, no, Bruce. Wrap it. Yeah, of course, of course. Sorry, the same thing he does every other time. John, last time we talked. I said that Coinbase, you said Coinbase needed an ATS. I said they didn't. You argued about it for 10 minutes. We can pull up the tape. You argued about it because you didn't know. You were arguing about it, acting like an expert on this, and point, pointing yourself out, saying things that are just materially false, oh, just God. like Gensler does. Okay. You said that they didn't. Okay, so on this case, it's linking, so, so linking this, so Bruce, Bruce, Mario, linking this to, so yeah, yeah, so Bruce, yeah, yeah, Bruce, 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 so yeah, John, Bruce, we'll just uh, move it away from personal attacks, because I love both of you guys on stage, go ahead, John, I know there's a lot of Exactly, please stay away from the personal attacks, if you want, Bruce, 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 I know, I know, Bruce, 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 yeah, yeah, Bruce, let's, let's get John to respond, please, Bruce, it's a really interesting discussion, go ahead, John. So let me say a few things. First, if you look on Twitter, I had pretty much a 24-hour debate with Mark Cuban about crypto and everything, and it was incredible. And at the end of the day, I said, despite my disagreements with Mark Cuban about crypto, about Kevin O'Leary, about his role in Voyager, I wouldn't, not only would I vote for the guy for president, but I would campaign for him all day long. And you can see that on Twitter, we had this lengthy debate where no personal attacks, no you know, none of these ad hominems. It's it's really, you know, I'm too old for it. Uh, most of the people on this call are young and they can handle it. I can't handle it. So let me, I'll address each of your points as quickly as I can without trying to get personal. First of all, the let's start with the meetings that Gary Gensler had. Okay, I'm not surprised. I would be shocked if he didn't have meetings with uh, Sam Bankman-Fried. And I don't subscribe to the conspiracy theory about it. Again, having worked at the SEC for almost 20 years and been chief for 11 years, I met with everybody John, all the time. Ryan, 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 Let's let's get let's get yeah, Ryan, Ryan. But let's Ryan, Ryan, let, let's get let's get all the points. I'm taking notes, and we can we can address them. Glad, John. Thanks, Mark. So you know, I met with people all the time. I met with uh, I met routinely with the general counsels and CEOs of online brokerages who were just starting out back in 1998, 1999. I wanted to find out, you know, what the SEC was doing right, what the SEC was doing wrong what the SEC was screwing up, you know, and, and most of the time, like I've said many times, I'm an SEC critic. You can read all of my criticisms. It, you know, this is, just happens to be an area where I agree with what the SEC is doing. So I I appreciate there's a lot of cronyism. I don't like it. I worked for nine different chair chair people and I found cronyism everywhere. And uh, and that's a, that's a perfectly, Bruce, that's a perfectly reasonable allegation. It's frustrating and it's wrong. But I can tell you that just having those meetings is not, you know, res ipsa loquitur. There's, there's this terrible crime. Now, as far as being a broker dealer, look, the point is, is broker dealer licensure requires that individuals be licensed with FINRA. It requires, again, SEC oversight, audits, examinations, net capital requirements, insurance, cybersecurity requirements, archiving requirements. There's a whole slew of things. And typically, when I was chief, if there was a broker dealer, that was involved, for instance, selling prime bank securities, these bogus instruments that to purport to represent the secondary market for letters of credit. That happened once. So before we investigated, we sent an examination. We, I called up, I had five former OC, uh, the Compli Office of Compliance Exam Inspections and Examinations, which is now called the Division of Examinations. I had five of those former OC members uh, in the group that we had hired. And I'd say, look, call your friends over in that division and have them do an exam and you guys go down there and stay in a hotel 
you know, a few blocks away. And if there are problems, you know, go in there with subpoenas. But so that's what oversight is, is that when there's any semblance or any, any, just any, even just a tiny bit of potential bad behavior, the SEC examiners and the FINRA examiners can get in there. That's what registration means. You may own a dormant broker dealer like Coinbase did. And it, but remember, Coinbase was specifically charged with failing to register as a broker dealer. Bruce can argue that, hey, that's a wrong charge because they were registered. Fine. But the fact is, that's what the SEC charged Coinbase with. That's what they charged Bittrex with. That's what they charge all these firms. John, just on the on the on the first, yeah. I think it's it's we could disagree, but it's it's what I love about this is just it just we're not an echo chamber. It's very easy to get a bunch of crypto guys and and just sit there attacking the uh, the SEC and and you know I make fun of Scott about this all the time, uh, Ran as well. But uh, so it's good to have you here, John, to have that back and forth on that first point. I think that's what Ran wanted to ask is the fact that. Um, and I'll give you my thoughts on it, but the fact that Gensler met Sam twice, at least he's, uh, he, he kind of made it clear that this is on pu his public records, and yet no one-on-one uh, -on -one meeting with uh, Brian, it was just over Zoom. Um, I, you know, preferential treatment for me isn't surprising, and I don't think that's that big of a deal. But I know that it could mean there's more cronyism um, under what we, we're seeing right now. So I want to get your thoughts, John. Do you think it's unfair that he met Sam twice and Armstrong none? No, without I, without implying that it's there's sure. any cronyism. Sure. No, I, I think, you know, when you look at the, the, the when I, again, having worked for, I think, eight or nine different chair chairmen and chairwomen during the course of the time that I worked there, their schedules were unbelievable. They met with everybody all the time. And, and as, even when I was chief, if somebody looked at my schedule, I met with everybody. I didn't keep a tally. I didn't sit back and say, okay, I met with the general counsel of E-Trade today. I should instead, I, sh I better call the general counsel of Schwab and Merrill Lynch to make sure they get their say. I really didn't think of things that way. Um, I think, you know, one of the best points that I hear people make, which I, I think is true, is yeah, I, I didn't go to dinner with these people, although some of them were former SEC people and were my friends. So maybe they were even at my wedding, you know, so it gets a little complicated if you're there for as long as I was, which was, as I said, almost 20 years, you know, people leave and they become very important in the industry and you're still friends with them. You don't stop talking with them. But you try to be as professional as you can. So sometimes when I read about like the the Hinman dinners, for example, I think John Deaton and those people make some very good points about Hinman's behavior in the ripple action. I don't think it's relevant necessarily to the ripple action. Maybe it is, but I haven't seen any evidence to that, that, you know, he was going out to dinner and talking about substantive things with his old firm. And he definitely had a financial interest there. And maybe he wanted to go back there. And the ethics office apparently wrote an email that said, we do not think you should have these meetings. And he went and had them anyway. So that's the situation that I think warrants investigation and is wrong. And I certainly, when I was meeting with anyone, I would always clear those meetings with the ethics council, who was usually very independent and would tell me yes or no. Um, and I think the chairman's office was usually very good at, at making those determinations, but nobody kept any sort of tally sheet. Is there cronyism that goes on? Yes. I, I think even worse is the revolving door. You know, there are definitely people who come to the SEC and are just hoping to do three years and then flip themselves over back to their old law firms. And I see that happen time and again. And that's always very disappointing to me. I feel like, hey, when they were at the SEC, they probably didn't want to upset their law firms. I was working as counselor to director to several directors and I would write speeches. And I remember writing a speech for one director about um, uh, CEO pay, which I felt was ridiculously high. 
And I wrote, I thought, a very good speech about that. And nobody wanted to give that speech. And I think the reason was is because everybody wanted to go out and be a CEO and make a lot of money. So I, uh, I get what Bruce is saying. I get what you're saying. It's human nature. And I'm certainly not arguing against that. Yeah, and Bruce, uh, I'd, I'd love you to respond, but just like my thoughts, could this be, in, you know, John kind of is meeting you, not halfway, but getting there, is that could this be, I know there's cronyism is a possibility, and I think none of us will discount it 100%, uh, but could this be just preferential treatment, and that's business one-on-one, you know, public companies get, or companies get advisors, give them shares, purely to get their level of access. Um, so so could it just be an example of, of uh, preferential treatment, which is unfair, but doesn't have to be that nefarious? Do you mean bigger donations? <laughs> Go ahead, yeah. Bruce. I mean, yeah, we got to remember that he stole customer money to give $70 million to Gensler's party, too. Gensler was chairman of Hillary Clinton's reelection campaign, and he oversaw the funding of the Steele dossier. And um, and then Sam stole $70 million of cu- customer funds, or 30, and I guess his colleague stole another 40 or whatever, but over $30 million that he gave, including, uh, I think, 5 or 10 to Biden. So that's, you know, so he, he had this, of course, there's favoritism. He, he's, you know, the, 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 mo- the most uh, wonderful person in D.C. He had every door open for him. And the, the, so the, the, the challenge with, with Gensler is that he doesn't meet everybody, like, like John said. He meets nobody. As far as I know, I don't know of a single person in the industry he's ever met. I've never seen him anywhere. I've never heard of anybody who's met him. So it's not just Brian Armstrong. It's Jesse Powell. It's everybody in the industry we can't even we're sec registered broker and we can't even get a meeting with anyone let alone the chairman we can't get an answer from anyone about anything about legit business that we have as a registered broker dealer registered with the commission if anybody should be able to get a meeting it should be us because we are legit registered and we're working in this space and we have legit questions about our actual membership agreement but even we can't get a meet with anybody forget about Gensel. i don't even bother trying i mean you know i you know, who am I? I'm just a, a, a you know a nobody who's been registered with the SEC for 30 years and been in crypto for 12 years. You know, I couldn't possibly help to you know just because I have a broker dealer. You know, I would never assume to to be you know in the presence of someone so important. But we can't get a meeting with anyone, and so it does, it does feel like uh, it does feel very much. It reminds me a lot of a third world country where it's kind of like who you know and everything's sort of vague and. You know, I, you know, in, in my career, uh, all my career, I've always felt that the SEC rules were, were clear for, for the first 27 years of my career. The last three years, no. I feel like we've gone over this ledge into this sort of third world territory where things are not clear. You can't look up the rules. You can't do even basic things. And this is, this is my main beef with John is that John is, I think, living in the, in the world that both of us in our careers grew up in, the world of you know, I started in 1990. I think John started after that, um, where it used to be honest. You know, maybe when John worked there, I think it was. I never, ever, ever, ever criticized the SEC once in my career until probably this year. Never once. Never had a problem with them. Never had a regulatory action. Never even been accused of anything. I've never had an issue with them. Always run a clean book. Always uh, followed all the rules. But now you have this situation where we can't find the rules. So you have companies like Abra, who spent millions of dollars. By the way, I'm an investor in Abra. We didn't get into it that much, but you know, I know that it, it, whatever the situation is, it's clearly unfortunate, but I know for sure that they spent millions and millions and millions of dollars on lawyers trying to do things, and they got a lot of these same kind of dead ends that many of us, the rest of us in the industry get, where you get to a point where you just can't, you can't get a straight answer. You can show them something in writing. Like I can, you know, I used the example a couple of weeks ago where I said, 
Uh, INX is a fully registered, publicly traded company that's filed in S1. And as a broker dealer, we are licensed to sell shares in publicly traded companies. I, the SEC wouldn't even answer whether we could do that. You know, something that's clearly in our membership agreement. So, so basic, basic things where they are completely failing. To me, what it seems like, it looks exactly like what it would look like is if Elizabeth Warren or the Biden administration gave them specific instructions to screw our industry. So they're purposely, I can't imagine they could be this incompetent. I can only imagine that they are purposely trying to hurt us. So, so I think so, that, that, that uh, cries to the unfairness of this. Yeah, industry. Mario, I have a question. Yeah, yeah go ahead. Go. And let me, before, yeah. before you ask your question, I forgot to mention just for the audience, if you want to come on the show or, or work with that incubator, anyone in Web3 or AI, uh, check the pinned tweets above and email us. That's the best way to do it. Or just hit us up via DMs or in the comments in the pinned tweet above. Mine or Rand's above. Uh, but yeah, go ahead, Scott. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting the points that Bruce just brought up and John. So I wanted to ask you about that because you said that you worked under 9, 10, 11, I don't remember the exact number, commissioners. Uh, is it true that potentially because of who is in power at the SEC that you could be getting more or less clarity for certain industries and that these things can change like that? Because Bruce is actually admitting here, listen, I've been doing this for decades, never had an issue until now. So, I mean, is it potentially true that it's just different this time? Yeah, I, I think Bruce makes a good point and you make an excellent point. Um, and I've worked for, I'd say, eight or nine different shares. As far as commissioners, I've probably worked for several dozen uh, because they rotate through. And the reality is when administrations change, now historically, again, Bruce makes an excellent point, historically at the SEC, and I started there in 1991, I'd been in private practice before that, um, the SEC was this kind of sleepy, quiet agency that people weren't really mad about. And then uh, after 9-11, especially when Harvey Pitt was chair and he, he really got to New York, and he and Dick Grasso, they worked it out so that the exchange came back online, the New York Stock Exchange. And those days were very, it was very proud to be the SEC, be part of the SEC, because a lot of people felt that the SEC was doing a great job, and I, I would wear my SEC uh, clothing all the time, you know, no problem. And then, you know, after Madoff or so, somewhere around there, I could be wearing my SEC jacket or something or a hat. And, and the, whoever was near me would start yelling, you know, uh, ad hominems at me, you know, like that happens on these Twitter spaces. So I, I get what Bruce is saying. I think things have changed. It's become much more polarized. And you make a, a super, super smart point that when these administration change, it's supposed to be that enforcement remains the same, but it doesn't because typically new pri there are new program priorities. There are new things like when Arthur Levitt came in, he was very upset about muni bond fraud because he worked in the muni bond markets and there was all this pay to play problem going on there. So that was a big priority of his. And um, Mark Cuban mentioned in the discourse we had yesterday about the pink sheets and microcap area and how the SEC doesn't bring those kinds of cases because they don't really do much for your career if you're in, within the SEC. And he was spot on about that. You know, if you bring microcap cases, they don't really generate headlines. Uh, and oftentimes pink sheet cases, they, they don't give you the kind of, of recognition within the building that they should. And that was a, a big complaint of some of the commissioners that I worked for over time. But when these administrations change, it change, things change. And I really do think if a Republican is elected, um, that if Hester Peirce became acting chair or someone else became chair, that a lot would change in the crypto space because the area has become so partisan. So, John, I, I agree. more light about that. 
Yeah, so I, I agree with that. And so then the next question then becomes, what about enforcement actions that are started during one administration under one uh, chairman that then continue on? Let's say that it, right. that scenario plays out. Hester Peirce becomes the chair, but we're, you know, a year or two deep into Binance and Coinbase right. litigation. No, I, I think that's a great point. I've never seen that happen in the history of the SEC that where a case that's actually been filed because the the current chairman doesn't agree with it. It gets with I'm certainly not saying it would be put down. I'm saying could the yeah. dynamics surrounding it change? Yeah. I think the dynamics could. I think the, the need for a settlement, you know, the, the chairman could reach down to their enforcement director and say, you know, I think that that this case should be settled. I think that or, you, you know, you, you never know what they can do. But, you know, when it comes to independence, there is, despite what some people on this call might think, there is still a, a fierce notion of independence from the SEC staff. You know, you, you things change when the administration change, but you don't necessarily try to change with it. You're looking to seek truth, to do justice, to make the world a better place. And that's why you're there. Anytime you want, if you work at the SEC, you can leave and triple your salary, quadruple your salary. In the case of crypto, you can probably get 10x your salary if you leave and join a crypto firm. So there's all, there's all sorts of reasons that people stay, but the probably the biggest reason above all else, it's, it's like when I was a criminal prosecutor too, you really have a good feeling about your independence. And if you're working litigation, I don't think you would allow for a second uh, right, but, when uh, you come in and right. compromise your litigation principles. Yeah, and sorry sorry to interrupt, but okay. I hate to ever use the term this time. It's different, right? Uh, the most four dangerous words in investing, but yeah. The issue that here is that if you had regime change, you had a new chairperson, you had potentially even a new president in general and party switch, a lot that's underlying this case or what's being proposed here is the idea of these being securities without that ever being made clear, right? What's a commodity? What's a security? How do you register? These are have been sort of the arguing points. If you have a Hester Peirce come in who then proposes again the idea of safe harbor where any project can come in within three years prove they're sufficiently decentralized and, and are not a security doesn't that blow up the entire underlying premise now that doesn't blow up the premise for claims against Binance certainly but if the basis here is that what's problematic is that Coinbase is allowing these unregistered securities to be sold and they're not licensed to do so but some point in that case we get clarity that those are not actually unregistered securities. Wouldn't that fundamentally change everything? Yeah, I, I don't know the answer to that. So you're saying something that was previously considered unlawful is by rule considered lawful. Just and by a definition of what the assets are no, that no, are being traded. I get it. Yeah, I get it. I, I I mean, I guess that's a that's kind of a bizarre scenario, but it's possible. And I think you're right about Hester. You know, I've known her for 25 years and she's, she's a brilliant person and an incredible human being. A, a brilliant mind, you know, everything. I, I happen to disagree with her on this, but she's a fierce libertarian as well. I don't know that she would become chair, um, but I do think, um, you know, the chair has incredible power. The chair can can call an emergency meeting anytime they want. They have a giant staff. They're the ones who hire all the division directors. Uh, the other commissioners have each have maybe three staff people. That's all Esther has. And those staff people are working around the clock helping that that commissioner, but they can't, there's not a lot a commissioner can do on their own, but all the budgets of all the divisions, everything is controlled by the chair, especially the meetings. So, um, you know, a, a, a real a real 
a chair who wanted to come in and change everything, like the way Harvey Pitt did, like the way Arthur Levitt did, uh, can make a lot of changes very quickly. For instance, Harvey Pitt, historically, every insider trading case at the SEC could be settled with what's called a one-and-one, a one-time penalty in the amount of your disgorgement of, uh, disgorgement of profits for your ill-gotten gains on the insider trading, and a one-time penalty. That was the, mo the only thing that was predictable at the SEC <laughs> was that small little piece. And Harvey Pitt came in and said, nope, I don't like that anymore. I think if you're a registered person or an accountant or a lawyer, you have a higher duty. So we won't do the one-on-one -on -one with you. He also said, he also came in and said, you know, this cooperative credit that the SEC talks about is a bunch of nonsense. We need to codify what cooperative credit means when you come in and cooperate. So he put together something called... Let me, let me, so, so let me ask you a question. because uh, I. I yeah, so let me ask a question to Scott and Ryan before we wrap up. Um, again, for the audience, if you're not messaging us in the pinned tweet, uh, it's your loss. Um, so make sure you check the pinned tweet and email us. But Ryan, Scott, my question to you is a, is a simple, interesting one. The ambiguity that we've seen in the crypto space, is that intentional? Or is that just the way things are in the system at the moment? Are you going to cut me if I start talking? No, no, I won't. Go ahead, Scott, and then we'll go Ryan. Yeah, I, the the ambiguity from the SEC, I think, yes, I think that, that that they're being purposely ambiguous and vague because it allows them to operate uh, sort of outside of the box and do this enforcement uh, actions to regulate. Because if we had clarity and they were forced to answer, is ETH the security? Is ETH the commodity? What are these assets? Then it would be a very different conversation. I, I think it's very, very purposeful that the SEC in these conditions continues to just name seemingly random coins as securities in each of these suits right you get the, the the in each case it's another six another seven i think we're up to 68 right and and if they can continue to just slowly list them off we know that the implication is that everything is a security everything is an unregistered security and that is going to be used in their cases so the less clarity they give i think the more wiggle room it has for gary gensler to continue down this path so that's why i was asking that to john because the minute that we actually get clarity on some of these assets, which there are congressional you know, people in Congress who are working to do, the minute we have that clarity, it will be fundamentally change the way that all of these uh, enforcement actions look, in my opinion. That's dope.